Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we discuss hack therapy, or hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, and thiamine therapy in septic shock. My name is Emily Vale. I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist and health services researcher. Um, over the past five years, my mentors and collaborators and I have been conducting health services and outcomes research, really focusing on how critical care is delivered and looking at changes in care that we've been able to associate with problems like drug shortages or availability of new scientific evidence. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, uh, Dr. Vale. So today we'll be discussing your publication in the Blue Journal um, from December 2020. It was entitled Use of Hydrocortisone, Ascorbic Acid, and Thiamine in Adults with Teptic Shock. And this was a really informative paper um, about uh, our use of this therapy as well as its effectiveness. So maybe you could give us um, a background as to why you felt that you needed to investigate this topic. Thank you so much. Really pleased to be here. Um, uh, as you probably recall, in December of 2016, the now famous prospective observational study um, looking at HAT therapy by American colleagues was published online in CHEST. Um, and at the time, there was some preclinical and clinical evidence supporting use of individual components of HAT therapy um, as a regimen for sepsis and septic shock. But the MERIC study was new and then it combined these therapies in human subjects and demonstrated a very dramatic mortality effect. So even though there were significant methodologic limitations, um, it did seem to generate a lot of interest among intensivists and other clinicians. Um, among our research group, we informally observed differences um, in uptake between different specialties, different institutions, and so we thought it would be interesting to more formally describe how clinicians adopted this therapy when the evidence was still so nascent. Um, so in, in designing this study, we aimed first to just describe the frequency of HAT therapy administration in a large cohort of patients with septic shock, to identify hospital and patient characteristics associated with use of that therapy, and last, to compare outcomes between patients who received HAT therapy and those who didn't. So 2016 sounds like a long time ago, um, with COVID occurring in 2020, it's almost as though there's this pre-COVID era. So as you said, there was kind of this uh, uptake in hack therapy, and it almost achieved a cult-like following where people were adamant that patients should receive vitamin C, thiamine, and hydrocortisone, even though, as you allude to, that maybe the evidence wasn't there. Um, what, When you analyzed the um, article by American colleagues published in CHEST, what were the concerns that you had about it um, that made you say, you know what, maybe we need to do a, a bigger study? The MIRIC study, again, was a prospective observational study with historical controls. And as they describe in the methods, they developed this regimen based on some preclinical and clinical evidence and then started to administer to their patients in a single ICU in a single U.S. hospital who presented with sepsis and septic shock. They had three very dramatic results with um, dramatic improvement in, in mortality, and so made the decision that they wanted to administer this, this HIT therapy to all patients in their ICU who developed sepsis and septic shock. Because they didn't feel comfortable withholding this therapy that they clearly really believed in to the patients, 
they made the decision to use historical controls. They attempted to control for confounding by matching the patients who received HHG therapy with previous patients they treated in their own ICU, matched for demographic and severity of illness markers, but they couldn't account for other di potential differences in care between the pre- and post-HAT therapy era. Um, it also raises the question when you have a group of investigators who, who clearly believe in the effectiveness of a therapy, whether they, there may be other types of bias that lead to differences in observed outcomes. For example, where they may have been more or less willing to adjust goals of care in response to, to perceived benefits of therapy, or there may have been differences in the clinicians present before and after the HAT therapy um, was administered that may have contributed to the observed results. And I think that's especially likely given how large the, the effect size uh, that they observed. You know, we talk about other trials in critical care medicine with dramatic effects on mortality of things like 10%. And so the 30% um, reduction in mortality in that original study um, felt certainly at the time very dramatic, but maybe in retrospect was too good to be true. Definitely. So with those uh, limitations in mind, the fact that it was small, the fact that it was a single center, the fact that there may have been a number of biases, you went ahead and um, designed your study. So maybe you could tell us about your study methods and how they aim to address these limitations that you mentioned. So this is a retrospective observational study. We used a very large clinical and administrative data set, unique in its ability to identify individual medications administered by hospital day. So within that, that data set, my collaborators and I identified a cohort of more than 300,000 adult patients with septic shock who were admitted to 379 U.S. hospitals. Um, we identified patients who were admitted to the hospital both before and after evidence from the Merrick study was available. And our primary exposure was quarter year of hospital discharge, which we classified into a pre-publication and post-publication periods. So there's a big difference in terms of number of patients. Uh, I think you alluded to the fact that the, the Merrick one was 47 and yours was more than 3,500, and theirs was a single center versus yours, which was 379 centers. So what uh, findings did you have? I will say first that unlike the Merrick study and some of the work done in the interim, our, fo our study really did focus on practice adoption and variation between hospitals, um, which is something that real-world data is, is perfectly... Um, is perfectly suited to do. As you said, though, we did find 3,500 patients who received HAT therapy, which was a large enough group that we were able to examine the effectiveness of therapy in this specific subgroup of patients. So among the 3,500 patients that we identified with septic shock, we found about 2,000 who received HAT therapy within two days of ICU admission. So in that smaller subgroup, uh, we compared patients who received the therapy and those who did not um, only in the subgroup of patients admitted to a hospital after knowledge of, of Merrick was believed to be wild, widely disseminated, so after July of 2017. In, that sub, in those groups, we found significant differences in the types of patients and some of the characteristics associated with receipted HAT therapy, and we did surprisingly find an increase um, risk of in-hospital mortality among patients who received HAT therapy when compared to those who did not. 
So how did you explain those findings? Uh, what is notable to me was, as you said, a substantial proportion of patients received HAT therapy after the publication of the um, uh, of the Merrick article. But what surprised me was that patients seemed to do worse even after you adjusted for uh, important risk factors. How did you explain that? Good questions. I think for, uh, first I'll say that the, this finding was robust to some uh, sensitivity analyses. So when we use propensity matching and compare different groups of patients or tried to account for some of these potential confounders, we found a very remar- we found a remarkably similar effect size. It was actually similar to effect size in some of the recent randomized trials. The major limitation of this study is unmeasured confounding. So although we had uh, a robust data set, um, which has been used in a lot of uh, studies of pharmacotherapy and a lot of information about the demographic and clinical characteristics of our patients, we couldn't identify exactly why clinicians decided to use the therapy. What we couldn't account for was rapid changes in clinical status of patients. For example, someone who rapidly deteriorated over the course of an afternoon before uh, in between the intervals of data collection nor could we specifically adjust for severity of illness. So the data set we use does not have its own um, uh, measure of severity of illness. And so even though there can be temporal changes that happen during the course of an ICU day or ICU stay, some of those differences that may have led a clinician to administer HAT therapy that, was also, that were also associated with worsening outcomes were not necessarily captured in the data set. So you've mentioned a number of limitations of your study, but one of the strengths are that it was a large study, um, I think in the fact of like 30 times larger than uh, the previous publication, and you obviously had a number of more uh, centers. So with that in mind, um, there have been subsequent publications that have shown uh, in randomized trials that um, uh, had therapy or at least vitamin C and thymine aren't beneficial in septic shock. What's your take on use of this therapy in patients with septic shock now? I think in comparing the total body of evidence now, so there have been a few observational studies that have shown some benefit. Some of those are modeled exactly over, exactly to match the NARIC study, even sometimes down to the, the sample size. Um, the observational studies are likely to be affected by unmeasured confounding as ours may have been, as well as problems like a mortal time bias that we were quite careful to avoid in our study. However, the two randomized trials published to date, and then uh, an even more recent study, uh, the Victus trial, which is, I believe is completed enrollment and is working on some of the secondary um, longer-term outcomes, we are not yet seeing a, a consistent benefit of of HAT therapy in these patients. This may be specific to HAT therapy and that it's not actually effective. It may be related to challenges that we see in critical care trials in general. So um, as, as we've seen in studies for things like hydrocortisone, we may not be selecting the right groups of patients to receive this therapy. Patients with septic shock represent a really heterogeneous group of patients with different um, clinical courses, different reasons for sepsis, and suffer from problems like like an inability for us to measure and, or to determine the exact onset of timing of sepsis, which we know the, the delays in clinical care are related to outcomes. If we take a, a, a group of patients like those with septic shock, 
and put them into a small trial, very difficult for us to find an effect. Um, it may be future work helps us to identify patients likely to benefit so that we could enrich future trials, or we may find ultimately that it's not effective. I think this little larger Shavansky trial will get us closer. Um, although I also, I, I don't have a sense either of whether the interest of vitamin C has maybe waned with the evidence that we have to date. Um, although there have been now some some case reports and some press releases advocating for the use of vitamin C in COVID-19 disease. So I think it's still in the back, um, in the minds of clinicians and investigators um, in 2021. Yeah, in in your article, you make the point of saying that uh, we as clinicians have adopted therapies uh, without high-quality clinical evidence. And as you alluded to, um, one of the big concerns is that with patients uh, having covid that they may be put on therapies that are either not beneficial or that are harmful. And uh, we're still waiting for data uh, regarding vitamin C and thiamine uh, with patients with COVID. So from what you're telling me, you would advocate for a pretty strong trial to uh, ensure that there is benefit before wide-scale adoption? I think so. And there have been lots of groups of patients or lots of groups of investigators doing really novel work on things like platform trials large-scale trials that should be able to get us some answers sooner. But from what we know to date, really hard to say that this therapy is as effective as it was found in the original Merrick study. So if you had to go back to looking at um, the, 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 the work that you did compared to uh, the publication by Merrick, um, do you think that there is an issue of they selected slightly different patients, or do you think it may just be uh, an issue of just a small sample size and small patient numbers and uh, the clinicians who uh, were definitely keen on um, the therapy and, and, and thought that it was beneficial? I would say a little bit of all of those things. Uh, first, we were using prim- we were using only administrative data. So although it's high quality, we didn't have the ability to um, temporarily associate um, uh, clinician diagnosis of septic shock. We used a lot of um, of secondary markers and a lot made a lot of inferences about who um, what a diagnosis of septic shock looks like in our data set. You know those methods have been used and validated, but very different from a clinician at the bedside making a diagnosis of septic shock and immediately um, making an intervention. We also it's very possible that the the patient populations vary in other ways. For example. Merrick used a procalcitonin level as one of the, the entry criterion, and we didn't have um, we didn't have that data available in our data set to be able to, to definitely um, say that the groups were equivalent. I think yes, certainly um, excitement among the clinicians in, who developed and administered the therapy may have played a role, and then ultimately. Um, and I say yes, definitely. It, it seems as though the the enthusiasm for the clinicians who developed and administered this therapy plays a role. You know, we really focused on what adoption looked like in a very large set of, of clinicians and hospitals without knowing anything about their individual interest or belief in the in use of the regimen. So we may have seen the HAT therapy administered only by clinicians who were strong advocates or only in situations where clinicians were very skeptical of the therapy but felt compelled to give it as a last-ditch effort and a patient unlikely to survive or maybe at the request of 
um, a consultant, a colleague, or even a, a patient or family member. So how would you get down to answering that final question that you posed? So it, it, if it was due to a so-called uh, last-ditch effort, where, um, you know, and, and sometimes we try therapies because uh, we feel that we've got to just at least try something. How would you answer that question uh, with the database that you have, or do we need uh, additional studies? So with the data we have available, that question is not answerable, in part because of the problem of severity of illness um, scoring. That We'd expect to see a lot of variation between individual providers in terms of their willingness to adopt the therapy. It may be something as simple as a survey instrument, looking back at an individual hospital or set of hospitals and asking clinicians who have administered the therapy what their decision-making was um, to, in order to select it. Um, it. What we tried to do in the, in the data available is to look at characteristics of the individual hospitals and see what, um, what types of hospitals were more or less likely to administer the therapy. We didn't find any consistent or, or um, expected patterns in, the, in those use. For example, we didn't see higher rates of use in academic hospitals who may have had uh, more access to medical journals or, or other differences from um, private hospitals. Um, so I think the, the answer may be at a more granular level, at the individual clinician level, and may not be captured in administrative or clinical retrospective data. Um, so looking to the future, um, what studies do you think need to be done to address this question of using hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine in patients either with septic shock or COVID-19? Or in your mind, do you think um, the, 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 the data is there, we just need to uh, follow the RCTs? Well, what are your thoughts on that? As an observational researcher, I'd like to say that this is an absolutely answerable question using pre-existing data. Um, it may be in a, it may be something that could be replicated in a different data set that was able to control for severity of illness. Um, however, some of the, the the challenges that we faced in really ensuring that patients who received and didn't receive the therapy are identical would still remain, right? That the problem of confounding by indication can be quite difficult for us to tease out in observational data. The problem of confounded by indication is eliminated in randomized trials, and so it may be worth considering future trial work. I think the other advantage of trials is that they're easier for clinicians to understand. Um, they require, in general, less sophisticated analyses um, and are less prone to the types of bias and errors that can be that can be inherited observational data and difficult to tease out. Um, and then, uh, Emily, in terms of preparation for this podcast, was there anything that we haven't covered um, that you would definitely want our audience to be aware of? Um, and maybe you could show, share some of your experiences that you've had uh, in uh, preparing for um, this podcast. Oh, yes. Um I think one I, one comment that I I think is worth would be worth making is that you know although overall we expect that most clinicians perceive vitamin C or HAT therapy to be safe and easy to administer, there may be other consequences of its use that are even more difficult to measure. Um, that may be something as simple as distracting clinical pharmacists um, who are preparing 
these formulations from administering other more timely therapies. It may be um, time spent on rounds teaching um, trainees about the therapy at the expense of learning about other therapies that are more proven or effective. Um, so even things that seem to be safe, and both the observational studies and the trials have repeated over and over that this therapy is safe, doesn't mean that there are not consequences of its use. Um, some of the more elegant things that we know, so the work that's been done so far, is demonstrating that high doses of ascorbic acid interfere with lactate assays. And so there may be patients with spiritually elevated lactic acidosis, uh, uh, spiritually, there may be patients with spiritually elevated um, serum lactate levels treated for worsening shock if clinicians are not aware of this potential interaction with the assay. And that's important to know. And then uh, I think, as you also mentioned, the, the safety issues, we need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, if you're giving hydrocortisone ascorbic acid and thiamine, that you're probably increasing the time of exposure of the nurse to the patient because they'll be administering these medications pretty uh, frequently. I think with the hydrocortisone, it's uh, sometimes four times a day. Um, so uh, unintended consequences of therapy, even though they considered safe, may increase risk. Yes, exactly. None of the work to date has been um, large enough or designed in a specific way to identify to identify safety outcomes other than to kind of make the the casual statement that that the drug has been safe to administer. Of course, of course, there are there there are studies in other populations using much larger doses of vitamin C, but um, but the safety question I think is still up in the air. Great. Well, I think you've given us a lot to ponder. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have you on the podcast with us, uh, Dr. Emily Vale. Um, for our audience, um, the article that we discussed was from the Blue Journal, uh, the December 2020 issue, entitled uh, Use of Hydrocortisone Ascorbic Acid and Thiamine in Adults with Septic Shock. Congratulations on your work, Emily, and all the best. Thank you to Dr. Emily Vale, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.